You're tuned into Going Long with Bruce Murray. Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce Murray. Welcome to my podcast, Going Long, where we spend time every week either with athletes, celebrities, people from all walks of life who have one thing in common, of course, their love in the world of sports. And this week, we do talk with one of the great athletes. And I think it's interesting. I hope that you heard my podcast with Joe Thomas because this week we spend time with another offensive tackle. And amazingly, you could make an argument that two of the greatest tackles, if not the two greatest tackles, to ever play the game of football, both played their careers in the state of Ohio and played their entire careers in the state of Ohio. Joe Thomas obviously played his entire career for the Cleveland Browns. It was a shorter career than the man that we're going to chat with today. But Anthony Munoz spent his entire career with the Cincinnati Bengals. Now, unlike Joe Thomas, when he was in Cincinnati, the Bengals actually had some good football teams and played in Super Bowls. But it wasn't always a great run in Cincinnati. That being said, he was drafted in 1980. And a year after being drafted, he was a first-team All-Pro, which he became a fixture at for nine of the next 10 years. Think about that. In a league where you can only pick one guy to be a left tackle on the all-pro team. He was that guy nine years out of 10. It's almost impossible. Joe Thomas had a great run as well, but again, it was a shorter career in Cleveland. Anthony Munoz was a first-team all-pro nine out of 10 years after his rookie season, and even in that season, he started 16 games. I actually remember him being drafted out of USC when everybody talked about him being the next great tackle. But what's being said and what actually comes to fruition, you can look in drafts today and realize that sometimes it's hyperbole. It wasn't with this guy. He was not only one of the greatest, not left tackles, but one of the greatest football players to ever play the game. He is still to this day one of the great ambassadors for the game. He is a guy that if you ever sit down and talk to him, you just realize what he's meant and how much passion he has for this game, as well as all his endeavors off the football field. The podcast, of course, can be heard on the SiriusXM app and wherever you get your podcasts. I hope you enjoy the conversation I had with Anthony Munoz, who I had a chance to talk with over the summer before this NFL season got underway. Joining us today is one of the NFL's 100 greatest players, in my estimation, by the way, the greatest offensive lineman to ever play the game. I know that sometimes he will defer to others and we'll ask him about it, but Anthony Munoz came into the National Football League in 1980, played for the Cincinnati Bengals for 13 years, participated in two Super Bowls. Unfortunately, didn't win either of them. We'll talk about that as well, but he's with us today. Anthony, it's great to catch up with you as always. I hope you're doing well at these times. I'm doing great, Bruce. I appreciate the time and uh, very kind words. Uh, you know, to be considered one of the best is good enough. Uh, you know, I know it's arguably, uh, it's an arguable topic. A lot of fodder goes around about all the guys, but I'm just thankful that my name's mentioned in, in the top 20, top 30. You know, I have to say something because you're very humble. You know, whenever you talk to you, obviously you're not going to call attention to yourself, which is not like everybody that's played this game. But, you know, I get a chance to work with Brett Favre once a week during the football season. And I did a podcast with him and I said, you know, it's one thing to put on the gold jacket. And you have that number inside that tells you, you know, what number you were. It's another thing this past year to be considered one of the 100 greatest in a game that goes back 100 years. Yeah. So I know that you're humble, but you have to have some appreciation for what that means. 
it's, I, I still pinch myself. And <clears throat> it's interesting that you mentioned Brett Favre. Uh, the cool thing about it is they put us all in a hotel together down in Miami. Yeah. All the guys that showed up and the families of those that have been or deceased. And we had a round table one night and, and Brett was one of the guys up there talking. And he was asked that question. What about, you know, now you're talking about hundred guys and hundred and Brett, Brett had a great answer. He's like, and I think we all sat there and went, Hmm. He said, this is like being a hall of fame, a hall of famer of the hall of fame. Yeah. I mean, Cause you know, you have, you know, 380 some guys and here you have a hundred, but it's, um, you know, the appreciation and the humility comes from really when people said I wasn't even going to be able to play in the NFL, you know, in college, a lot of people don't know that I only played one healthy season, had uh, three knee operations in four years. So my last year, my senior year got hurt. Second time we had the football, the first game had surgery rehab and I played in the Rose bowl. The Rose bowl is my only game. And it was fun to read a lot of stuff. Cause it was like, Oh man, that's such a great ending to your story. You had a chance to play in one Rose bowl. You guys had been in two previous. That's a great way to now move on to your life's work. And, uh, my whole attitude was, you know, if I played in the entire Rose Bowl game, I need just a shot to play in a net or to go to an NFL camp. I just want to see if I can compete on that level. That's all I want. Of course, I continue to bust it for four months uh, physically. And all it took was one team and the Bengals with uh, not only one team, but with the third pick in the first round. So the appreciation that I have, not only being able to wear the gold jacket, but now the maroon jacket is one of the top hundred. Uh, and to look around, I was on the field and I had my phone. I, I turned right over my right shoulder. I said, I said, coach, let's take a picture. And it was Mike Ditka and I, and I took a selfie of the two of us and just sitting over watching Jim Brown and thinking, man, I'm on, I'm on their team now. I mean, it's uh, the great Deacon Jones would always say when we were up at the hall of fame in Kent, he'd say, this is a team that they can't trade us. They can't cut us. They can't wave us we're on this team forever and so that's how I feel about it. it's very humbling but it's a thrill to be part of that group and uh, it's still again like I said I still pinch myself every time I hear things like this yeah and you know you talk about that career at USC that was when they had a football program right no I, I can't we'll be back we'll be back uh, <laughs> you can you can see over my my shoulder there yeah it's uh I know uh there's a lot of people out there that want us to stay down but we'll be back um but yeah, it, uh, those days were amazing. I tell people that Saturday was not easy for me in college, but it was easier because practice during the week, man, it was tough. I'm facing the two-time All-American Gary Jeter. We had David Lewis, who, bless, God bless his soul, just passed away. Rod Martin, Clay yep. Matthews. I have to say Clay Matthews, the dad, because people say, you're not <laughs> you're too old to play with Clay Matthews. I'm saying, no, the real Clay Matthews, not the son. So, you know, the defense was just loaded in practice all week. We just uh, – so it was one of those things that in the four years that USC had a chance to win a national championship, and we were one game and one tie from going three national championships in four years. Yeah. I mean, it, listen, uh, you, you and I are close in age. I'm, I'm in my late 50s, and when I was a kid, you know, Notre Dame was obviously a phenomenal program, but USC was the program. Running back you, offensive line, it was – you know, and, and – it's funny as a kid, you don't expect things to change, but there was a time when Alabama was not Alabama, right. you know, after Bear Bryant retired, you know, Gene Stallings was there obviously, but it was a long, you know, a long lull for them. It, it's, it's not easy. And today with, with the way the landscape has changed with scholarships and everything, it's gotten even, you know, even more competitive. It really has. And I think the thing that really hurt us was the whole, uh, the Reggie Bush debacle that uh, I still believe not only because uh, I love the place, 
I think the penalty was uh, almost a death penalty compared to what other schools have done and not gotten half the, the, the penalty. And I think it was just our attitude going into that whole thing. The number of scholarships, that really hurt recruiting. I mean, we used to have <clears throat> the state of California locked down. We'd go out to any other state and get whoever we wanted. So hopefully that's coming back. I've been following really closely on the, on the recruiting information. And it seems like we're, you know, Clay Helton retained his job, but he's brought in some, uh, some rock star assistant coaches. In my humble opinion, a head coach is only as great as his assistants. You need guys that can go in the, the houses of these young men, establish relationships, and not only get them to the university, but now you have to develop them with the assistant coaches. Uh, I tell people, uh, four years at SC, 13 in the NFL, uh, three head coaches never coached me once as an offensive lineman, but I had some great, uh, I had great, two great offensive line coaches, Hudson Houck, who yep. coached for 30 years in the NFL, mm -hmm. and Jim McNally, considered one of the best, both guys, and they they developed me, and uh, it wasn't the head coach. The head coach had his job and did a phenomenal job, but those assistant coaches, in fact, I was just up uh, talking to Hall of Fame, I said, so what do we have to do to start getting assistant coaches in the Hall of Fame? You have head coaches, you have contributors, you have the players. I said, I said, made the same point. Now, and I had a Hall of Fame offensive tackle as my first head coach in the NFL, Forrest Gregg. In the four years he was my head coach, not one minute did he coach me as an offensive lineman. He allowed his offensive line coach to coach. Wow. You know, and I can just look at offensive line coaches, Joe Bugle, Alex Gibbs, Howard Mudd, Jim McNally, those guys. Of course, there's other position coaches that are phenomenal. So I think it's time that we start uh, – you know, really campaigning and trying to get those assistant coaches as contributors into the hall. Oh, I, I agree with you. I mean, obviously, New England just uh, had their great offensive line coach retire, but there have yeah. been great ones. And I'm, I'm proud to say, Anthony, that uh, I did not go to a football power in college. I went to what I considered to be the stepping stone for coaches to get better jobs. And my head coach actually became yours later, Larry Smith. I'm a Tulane alum. Oh, so Larry great. Smith came to you in the late 80s. The green wave, baby. I, uh, I did Conference USA for one year, and I did a couple uh, two-lane games. So, uh, yeah, Larry Smith, he was, uh, he was at SC. Um, and we lost him, uh, you know, not, not long ago. But uh, he had some rough times there. Uh, him and Ted Tolner really struggled after the Robinson and along with Paul Hackett until, uh, you know, Pete Carroll got there. So, yeah. But uh, the guys that have played for uh, Larry Smith, nothing but uh, high praise and great things to say about him. All right, so you struggle through college you get, you, with all the injuries. You're not sure if you're going to be an NFL player. And then you're the third pick in 1980. By the way, little trivia, Billy Sims, great player. Now, he blew out his knee twice. And, you know, you think about if he had those same injuries today, he may have had a long career, but back then it was difficult. And then the trivia question, it's kind of like Sam Bowie being drafted in front of uh, Michael Jordan. Right. Johnny Lamb Jones. Yeah. Johnny Lamb Jones, who could run really fast, but the only problem was he couldn't catch. And that became an issue. I believe he was on the uh, four by 100 Olympic. Yeah. It's really interesting. You mentioned that uh, I've had a chance to be around Bill Belichick here lately with the hundredth anniversary team. And I, I just, um, I love the guy now, man. I didn't know him before then, uh, but uh, he's brought up a couple of times, you know, because the jets were number two and, you know, uh, Parcells was around, he was around, I guess we were at an event and the jets team doctor happened to be at the event in uh I forget if it was Parcells or, or Belichick said, so um, I forget the guy's name he said, so Anthony wasn't fit to play in the NFL, huh? We passed on him. <laughs> <laughs> and the doc just kind of smiled and, and I just, I kind of, you know, turned to the side, but uh, we have fun with that, but that's Johnny Lamb Jones. I mean, he was, uh, 
and I knew that the Jets had already failed me, so there was no chance of, of going, you know, number two. And quite frankly, prior to that year, I was top five projected. After that injury, I might have been a free agent, maybe not even a free agent. So, uh, like I said, it took one team and the, the Bengals. I'm sure a lot of Bengals fans here in Cincinnati were scratching their head thinking, <laughs> what are you guys doing? Drafting a guy that hasn't even played half his college games. Yeah, I, I would say it worked out in the long run. But so so you come in in 80, and you're not coming to a good football team. This was not the, – the Bengals, they were not a good football team when you went there. And then a year later, you're playing in a Super Bowl – so, and, and before we talk about that, because I'd love to know which one was more painful and, and, and ties to the reason why you're with us today, because um, obviously you have to find strength without victory because right. you missed in some of those, but everybody's got that welcome to the NFL moment. So you're drafted by the Bengals. You're going to a division with the Pittsburgh Steelers who had won four Super Bowls in the last six years, you know, with Terry Bradshaw and all the guys there, everybody's got a welcome to the NFL moment. What was yours? Well, you have to understand, too. I mean, why would I go to USC in the 70s when they're pumped? I mean, we had 17 draft picks uh, my freshman year, three of the top five. You go there to compete. So I'm going to Cincinnati. Didn't know a lot about the geography of Cincinnati, but I knew about Love Your Blue, the Oilers, the Cleveland Browns, the Steelers. So it was one of those things where, all right, baby, let's, we're stepping in the hot water. The, the, the Steelers had just come off Super Bowl win number four, beating the, you know, the Rams in Pasadena. First game, I run out to play the Steelers, and there's L.C. Green with Joe Green, uh, Dwight White, Lambert, Ham, Shell, Blunt. I'm thinking, can I get some autographs first and then play these guys? Yeah. But, you know, it was one of those things where you just – that's how you get better. That's how you – but my welcome to the NFL moment was two of the first five games, I played against number 63 down in Tampa Bay, Leroy Selman. Oh, man. He was a beast. Now, he was one of the nicest guys you would ever meet, God-fearing, just a, a unbelievable Christian man. But I tell you what, he played the game that was the way it was supposed to play, and he taught me a lot, and that was welcome to the NFL. And uh, I'll never forget that. I'll be thankful for that because I learned right away how to compete on that level. You know, I know the game has changed a lot, but was there a lot of trash talking when you first came in with a guy like Leroy Selman or L.C. Greenwood, any of those guys? You know, today it's – you know, put your hand in the dirt and everybody's like, hey, yeah, you know, you know there's, there's all the exchange. I think today it's a prerequisite. To, you got to be able to talk trash in order to play in the league. But no, yeah. we had we had some guys. But the best thing to do with the talker, and I would love to face guys that are talking today, is what you do. You wink at them, you smile, and just walk away from them. And then you line it up, and then you just say, hey, I'm going to try to physically dominate and not say a word. And that's what I did. There was a couple guys that I played against. And they got so frustrated because I wouldn't talk. They went right up and down the line to see if any of the other linemen would talk. But we had our guys, but it wasn't as it wasn't rampant as it is today. I mean, it wasn't, you know, pointing at the number. Or, you know, the, one of the best, and I'm not a big celebration guy, and I, but the best thing that happened for me watching NFL games is when they said they can celebrate as a unit. Right. The, the thing I hated was a wide receiver catching a touchdown and run away, running away from his teammates as he celebrated. The lineman had a lot to do with it. The quarterback had a lot to do with it. Maybe the running back picked up a blitz for a quarterback to hit the wide receiver. So when they started celebrating together as a unit, I loved it because they're, they're working as a team. So I got to tell you, one of the great lessons I, I remember learning, and I worked with Bill Parcells a long time ago, and I asked him about celebrating. And he said, I never had an issue with celebrating as long as you called attention to the team and not yourself. Right. And that That's was always point. his message. Everybody thought he was like anti-celebration. He said, I don't have a problem with celebration. 
Just don't make it about yourself. Here's here's another point. I was listening to a interview on with Chuck Noll, and the question was along those lines. They said, Chuck, now you see all these guys celebrating. He says, but you guys don't celebrate. What's the difference? He says, well, the guys that are celebrating all the time, they make one great play, they celebrate, and they might not make another great play until a week, two weeks later. He said, my guys made great play after great play after great play, and they would just go back in the huddle because that was their job. Right. And, uh, so, I mean, you know, Paul Brown, who I was around for 10 years, used to say, act like you've been there. So Isaac Curtis, man, and his, you know, he was a sprinter. He'd catch the ball with his long strides and just kind of over his shoulder and go to the sideline. Act like you've been there. Well, I, you know, b- before you came on the podcast, we were talking about guys I worked with, and I, I think you were a little upset that it was mostly quarterback. So <laughs> I, I can introduce at least one offensive line. I haven't worked with him, but Brady Quinn's roommate, his, his rookie year in Cleveland, was Joe Thomas. Um, and Brady thought he was going to be the third pick in the draft. Turns out to be Joe Thomas. And anytime you talk to him, I, I would always talk about trash talking. And he'd say, I didn't really need to trash talk because – at the end of the play, I was generally standing there and the other guy was someplace far away from where he was supposed to be. So you just the, the message was, if you can do your job well, you don't need to say anything about it. Well, again, nothing against quarterbacks, but you're trying to get that connection with an offensive lineman being the roommate. Being Joe Thomas is one of the best. Oh, you got close. You got me close <laughs> to saying that is great, but he's, you still have not worked with Joe Thomas. No, I think- I think you'd love working with Joe. He's he's phenomenal. Oh, and he's a, he's a great personality, really. Yes, is. All is. right. So, so obviously, the, we have a lot to talk about, including your your involvement with athletes in action, and and another reason why you're here. But I, I got to talk about the two Super Bowls because I've talked to others about this. So you get there year two. Now those were two, and and you know this. I'm sure you've talked about them a million times. Excruciating Super Bowls. Yep. But I always wonder which one was tougher to swallow. The second one, you kind of had to sit on the sideline. And you were powerless to do anything about it as Joe Montana brought him down the field. But in the first one, you know, we all remember the defining moment, which was the four downs inside the two-yard line. Right. You guys had a beast of a fullback. Right. I, I, I really want specifically, take me through that one moment in the game, that series, and what happened. Uh, it's been a long time, but it's like it happened yesterday. First of all, back to your comment that I got to a not very good football team. And since I would agree with that record-wise, yeah, the team was loaded. With it was talent. talent. Yeah, I agree. We had four number one defensive linemen. We had a quarterback that should be in the Hall of Fame that his c- career was resurrected. We Agreed. had a big fullback, as you mentioned, Isaac Curtis, Kenny Riley. So watching videotape on this football team the year before I got here, it was like, how can these guys have not been very good? I mean, you know, Wilson Whitley and Eddie Edwards and Gary Burley and Ross Brown were the four linemen. I mean, they were loaded. But we got a head coach that came in with the system was a disciplinarian, Forrest Gregg, got everybody into shape. His plan was just like golden. So getting to your question, I'm trying to avoid that, of course. <laughs> well, you must have liked playing for Forrest Gregg, too, because he was another one of those big guys. Uh, unbelievable. And whatever he asked you to do, I would do it and more because I knew he had gone through it and he had done it himself with Vince Lombardi. But that first one, we had more control of that loss because we had it first and goal on the one and four times. And we were on a roll that time at that yeah. point, when they stopped us, we were out first down them in that second half eight zip. So we were, we scored that time. And I think we continue to go. We should have scored on the very first play. Right. People say, why didn't you run left? Well, we ran left the first play myself and Dave Lapham, the tight end, the center got good movement. We ended up in the end zone. 
But the motion guy coming across missed the corner coming off the edge, and that's the guy that made the tackle in the backfield. If I was a betting man, I would have bet the deed on my house that we would have scored with Pete Johnson. And I think that year we averaged over five yards a carry. I mean, they listed Pete at 245, 250. He might have been 265 by then. Uh, how many? Here's my question. Dan Bunce might be a great guy. Yeah. <laughs> how many other plays did he hit a 235-pound running back in full stride and take him straight down? No momentum. No. All he, Charles Alexander had to do was fall forward, and he scored. So, I mean, they they played that those four downs extremely well. Ronnie Lott, my buddy, Jack, you know, Hacksaw Reynolds, they had a pretty good defense. But after that goal line stand, then they did enough. They kicked two field goals in the second half, and that was it. They did enough to win the game. With the second one, yeah, it was out of our hands. We're sitting there. We had done enough to take the lead. They had moved the ball quite a bit on us, but the, our defense had been able to stop them. But that last drive, 92 yards, less than three minutes, Montana's Montana. And there as a defensive player, you just, you're kind of dreaming about, what if I would have been given the Bruce Smith pass rushing skills and they could have threw me in there and I could have rushed Montana, maybe got a sack, but no. I was too slow. didn't have any pass moves, pass uh, rush moves. But, yeah, that was – which one was tougher? It might have been the second one because we had the lead going yeah. late to the game. Uh, the first one was also tough. It was close. We made a couple of big mistakes right before half, couldn't handle the kickoff, and that was the difference, the six uh, points, the two field goals they kicked. But I'd probably say the second one because we had it. We had the lead very few times. They had to go the whole length of the field to score and, and to beat yeah. us. Knowing what you knew about Montana, you're standing on the sidelines. What's going through your mind? Are you thinking, you know, look, you had a good defense. I know it. I know that. You, you basically shut them down for the better part of that game. But you just know it's Montana. You know it's Rice. You know it's Craig. You've seen it before. What's going through your mind? Are you thinking we're going to stop them? You know what? I felt decent until after they had like a third and forever. And Rice broke attack. I think it was third and 16, third and seven. He caught it, broke a tackle, and what got like 17, 18. When yeah. he did that, then I really – at first I thought, we can get this. We're going to get this one. But as soon as they made that big play, I think that really propelled them and kept them going. Where they, uh, You know, you would think Montana to Rice to win the game. John Taylor, first catch all games, and it's a touchdown catch. I know it doesn't mean anything to you. I was rooting for you in both of those Super Bowls. Wow. And unfortunately, uh, you know, wasn't a Bengals fan, but rooting against the teams you were playing and – walked home disappointed but you know one of the reasons why you're here is because of your involvement in an organization after the fact and you know something that you want to talk about is experience victory beyond competition and it, it it can't be easy carrying this with you your whole you know listen I mean you know you're part of the greatest 100 many of whom not only have the jacket but also the ring that says champion and that's got to be something you carry around with you so so what's the message here what are we talking about well first of all there's a lot of those gold jackets and a lot of those Cardinal Jackets that never played in the Super Bowl. Oh, yeah. Let alone lost the Super Bowl. So I'm very fortunate and blessed to have played in two. I probably, you know, love to win as most, as you know, most people. I hate to lose probably more than anybody. Um, and I, it's not just a campaign, Bruce, that I'm just carrying around recently. Um, so victory beyond competition. Really, I started to learn that when I was playing in the NFL. You know, we talked about my college career, you know, the loss of a lot of games because of injury. Um, you know, we had one big loss my freshman year that kept us from the national championship. We had a, a tie my junior year, 11-0-1, that we, keeps us from a national championship, the two Super Bowls. So what I learned 
playing in the NFL and in my life, victory beyond competition was that I, that phrase began to mean a lot to me when I realized that my victory was in God, who was my ultimate and my primary audience. And that's who I was competing for because of the gifts he's given me. And that really has helped me. We lose that first Super Bowl. I didn't, I didn't pout. I didn't, I came back a day or two later down to our practice facility, started pumping weight, started lifting. And I think that's what happened. It gets you going. You know, we need to spread some positivity, even with the readjustment, the reset with COVID-19, you know, OTAs being lost, preseason being lost. You know, there's a, we got to step back and say, okay, we're not in, in control of our lives as much as we think we are. And that's when I realized that, the, you know, God was in control and he's the one that gifted me. And that's where the whole victory beyond competition. I'm going to compete. I'll probably, you know, compete as well or better than most people. I mean, every Sunday I went out there, you weren't going to get Kenny Anderson or Boomer. You weren't going to tackle James Brooks or Pete. But I realized that the victory was not in the wins and losses, but it's in that, uh, you know, it's not in the competition of wins, but it's in the victory that I have in, in the Lord. You know, I, I think it's so interesting, especially when you talk about, and, and, you know, I think all the greats to a man when they suffer defeat are ready to get back to it. What can I do next time to avoid that? Um, and you had that attitude, but I've never talked to an individual that has played professional sports who hasn't said it's a lot harder to get over the losses than celebrate the wins in hindsight. And yet you seem to have that proper perspective but it can't be easy for you to ignore, you know, those two close calls and, and what went into that. Well, it's not. But, you know, if I was a boxer, if I was a tennis player, if I was a golfer, it probably would be a lot tougher. But I'm one guy of 50 plus guys. So, you know, I, I can do my part. Maybe I didn't do it as well as I should have. I'm not saying that I've completely gotten over it. I mean, it still stings, especially Super Bowl time. They're running all the highlights. I keep thinking that John Taylor's going to drop the pass. <laughs> I keep thinking that Pete Johnson's going to hit Hacksaw Reynolds and bowl him over and go into the end zone, but it doesn't happen. But uh, it's kind of like also I share my story of my background. I grew up with a single mom, five kids, never had a car, never had a whole lot of money. Then the three knee operations in college. You can let your background dictate and hold you from your dreams. You can let adversity hold you back, keep you from not believing that you can accomplish. I could have, thrown in the white towel, that third knee operation my senior year, but I was determined. I used it as a motivator. So, you know, you can go one way or the other. You can, you know, say, hey, my mom didn't have enough money to buy us clothes and all my friends had these new clothes. But when we were dressed with the, the one maybe pair of pants that we had most of the school year, she would wash them and iron them and they look brand new every time we wore them. So, I mean, you can allow those things to dictate, to keep you stuck or you can just go forward. So my whole attitude is, man, when you bring up the Super Bowl, I don't like talking about losing the 49ers, especially twice, you know, and when you're at an event, they got the championship ring and you know, I got an AFC championship ring that's in my, my drawer at home. I don't like that, but I can't change that. I can't, you know, so you can't get stuck in that. So why not, you know, have that victory beyond competition where you feel joy of playing 13 years in the NFL, playing 11 Pro Bowls, playing in two Super Bowls. I hear guys that say, if I'd if I known, if I would have known that I was going to lose the Super Bowl, I would not have wanted to play in the Super Bowl. I'm thinking, crazy. That's what you work all offseason, preseason, season, regular. That's what you work for to play in a Super Bowl. The fact that I, so I can say I played in two Super Bowls 
and that there's these gold football sitting at Chafee High School in Ontario, California, because I played in this. I'm thankful for that. So, so, you know, I think it's interesting because, you know, oftentimes when, when you're out there as you're doing, trying to spread a message, people may hear it, but not understand the value in it. And I saw some of the things that were sent on your behalf. And one of the things that you've asked to do is, is, is finish the phrase, I experienced victory beyond competition when. And the reason why I say that is this, to hear the message, I can nod along and it may go in one ear and out the other. When I actually sat down and said, okay, let me see how I would finish this sentence. And I want to send people to your website, by the way, victorybeyondcompetition.org, where they can do the same thing. I was like, now I kind of get it because, you know, we all struggle with losing from time to time. But but how can we get value out of that? You know, and you mentioned the website and then go there and learn more about what we're doing and, uh, you know, find out how they can win. If they want to autograph football from a old broken down offensive lineman, I'd be willing to do that. Maybe a phone call to talk to them about so maybe some struggles are going, but make sure to use a hashtag, hashtag uh, victory beyond competition. But uh, we welcome all people to come and just check. But you're right. I mean, when I share, I talk a lot to young people, to old people, and I talk about people that have been successful. I've not met a successful person that hasn't had losses in their life. It hasn't gone through adversity. And I tell these young people, I said, it's not a matter if you go through adversity, but when you go through the adversity, how are you going to come out the other end? How are you going to have that victory beyond the, the losses? All right. First of all, old broken down lineman, I, I will share with you uh, at the Super Bowl. I was actually meeting Brett for dinner one night. I saw you in the lobby with the rest of the group. It looks like you can still play. I mean, oh, come you're, on. You're kind. You're kind. I do work out every day. Um, when you have nine grandkids, you want to be able to shoot a little hoop, yeah. be able to run around with them. But uh, I tell people and I, like I tell my son. I might have one play but I have to make it a good one. That's it. <laughs> but, you know, you bring up something interesting because I just saw a story about Max Unger, the great lineman who just yeah. retired. And he said the first thing he did when he was done playing was he lost 60 pounds. Mark May, a guy that I worked with in Washington, lost weight immediately. Some guys go the other way. Right. But, you know, look, we're not supposed to be that big. You were a large man when you played. What, what was it like when you were done? Did you motivate yourself to lose weight for health reasons? Well, health reasons, uh, you know, being one of the only siblings that doesn't have diabetes and, you know, losing family members of diabetes, it's an incentive. It's a health thing. Uh, I was a runner when I was playing for a big 300 pound lineman. I ran distance six miles a day. I continued that after I, I retired, you know, for you know, most of those guys, I'd be curious to see how big they were when they left high school. The majority of those guys were 240, 230 to 250. I would I'd bet. I was 300 pounds when I left high school. So I had to work really hard. So I'm down. I get down. I, I float between in the fifties. I mean, I can say I'm 50 pounds less than I was in high school, you know, so because I left at 300, but no, you do it for health. Uh, and then you're motivated because like I said, I have nine grandkids. I want to watch them at least get through their childhood, get through high school and hopefully see them go off to college. And that's what motivates me. My wife, we've just celebrated 42 years with all those grandkids. Congrats. Uh, I want to be around for a while and experience some uh, good things with them. Your nine grandkids combined don't weigh 300 pounds. I mean, it's, well, it's, I never understood. I always struggled to put weight on. And even today, um, I never got how guys could get that big. It's, it's well, fascinating. I just looked at food and it was like, wait, I didn't eat it. I looked at it and I've gained five pounds. But uh, yeah, I, I didn't have problem keeping my weight on. Uh, I'll never forget between my junior, senior and college, between surgeries, I had a knee operation. I was busting it in the weight room and I got an infection in the knee. They said, you can't do anything. You can't run. You can't jump rope. They said, all you can do is lift upper, upper, upper body weight. 
So all I did was lift up for body weight and eat. And I was three, close to 320 before Man. my senior in college. So that's how quick, but I was back down to 290, 295 for the season. That's how quickly I could get up. The only difference when I was playing to now, they didn't let us get, they gave us a weight and they weighed us every Thursday and we had to stay at that weight. I, if they would have said, Anthony, play or whatever, I could have gone over 300 easy because I like food. <laughs> Listen, I know we could talk for hours. Unfortunately, you have to go. Let me mention the website again, victorybeyondcompetition.org. It's victorybeyondcompetition.org. Anthony, it's great spending some time with you. I, like I said, I could do three hours with you, but at least we had this time together. Oh, that's great. I enjoyed it, Bruce. I appreciate it. Uh, maybe we can do it again. Don't ever hesitate. i uh, love to do it. Sit and chat. Now, maybe, as long as we don't talk Super Bowl losses. No, <laughs> Never again, I promise. <laughs> okay, no, no problem. Hope you enjoyed the conversation with not one of the great left tackles, but again, one of the great football players the National Football League has ever seen. Part of the 100 greatest players honored by the National Football League, Anthony Munoz. You can hear my podcast every Thursday as we introduce you to somebody new who has a passion for the world of sports. I hope you'll join me next Thursday. I'm Bruce Murray.